welcome to episode 178 of NCP. My name is David, and with me are the crew, the original flavor crew. Richard. The original flavor crew. Yes. We are the whitest group of white people in the universe. <laughs> the doing a nerd <laughs> podcast. <laughs> There's no flavor here. The flavor is vanilla. Yeah, no, well, well, truly, the that's the only vanilla. flavor that's here. <laughs> it's the finest of the flavors. <laughs> Do a flavor flavor prison. Oh yeah, boy! <laughs> and Luke, it's the flavor that you feel on the inside that counts. Vanilla. If that's the flavor that you so choose, <laughs> in your boring little world that you that you're inhabiting over there on the couch. Vanilla's you mean the boring. podcast world that you two are inhabiting? No, I'm just saying, no, not the podcast world. I'm saying the world that you're physically inhabiting there in that space and time. Crystal's got flavor. Hey, Crystal! Hello. What is your flavour? Vanilla. <laughs> and I like vanilla. Honey. Oh, oh right. Hang on a second. Worcestershire hey. sauce. Oh, no, no, that's... Getting, that's getting creepy. No, it's all right. If you put honey in Worcestershire sauce... To... No, anyway. Now <laughs> <laughs> it's getting weird. Uh, for this episode, we have two dust jackets. It's our dust jackets episode. Yay! So we have um, Brave New World... As part of our sci-fi list. We do. And Let the Right One In as part of our crew pick, which was myself. Uh, and then we're also going to have a tribute to um, to uh, people who recently passed, uh, David Bowie um, and Alan, Alan Rickman, because they meant a lot to us, and we want to honour their passing. Instead of just the... Just the you know, there's the uh, rest in peace that we do at the center. <laughs> so, <laughs> rest in peace. Uh, yeah, we'll do, we'll do a rest uh, in peace. Smith. No, we'll do a rest in peace for, uh, what's it, Haggerty? Dan Haggerty, the guy that played Grizzly Adams, because he passed away. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so Grizzly Adams died. The top of my flies, man. And he did, but the, the, dude was, from, the dude from Ghostbusters died? Yeah, the mayor. Um, what's uh, Celine Dion's husband? Yeah, the guy that did the voice of uh, Robin Hood in the old Disney Robin Hood film. Really, the Fox version. Yeah, he passed really? away. Oh, that's terrible. It was funny. Oh, this is this is starting to really bad. I was just having a conversation with a work colleague yesterday morning about Grizzly Adams. She'd never heard of him, mm. and what? I was trying to explain who Grizzly Adams was <laughs> and Ben and all the show. And it wasn't until halfway through the day she went to me, "Hey, you know that guy you were telling me about? He just died." I went, what? <laughs> you killed him. Grizzly Adams died. <laughs> that's right. You jinxed yes, him. But I was also talking about Donald Trump yesterday morning. Oh yeah. Well, that's... we can only hope. Talking about Donald Trump. Have you guys seen the song? The song is part of his rally. No, it's three little girls, like preteen girls, wearing those dresses that they wear in the Cap- in Captain America. You know the the, the capettes. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and they're sitting. I, lo- I want to call it the Trump rap, but it's not. It's 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 it's, it's like a rally type song. Whereas you know America is great, USA. And, you know, the land of freedom is not free, and you know that sort of <laughs> that sort of stuff, right? Oh my God. Um, and it's just it's horrifying. It's like a. And it's like a Jonestown deal. And he's the uh, Repub- He's you know looking like he's going to be the Republican candidate. Yeah, his it's, numbers are it is shocking. Well, a good deal of the Republican candidates are just as bad. Yeah, yeah, they're all bad. Let's be honest. <laughs> let's not beat around the bush. So uh, let's start off with Richo and Brave New World. Why? Thank you. You are thank very welcome. <laughs> I'm pleased that you are pleased. (laughs) 
Okay, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley was written in 1931 and published in 1932, not surprisingly. For those keeping track, uh, it is actually number 17 on sci-fi lists. 17 is pretty high. It is. Um, there are several books actually higher on the list than that. That are sixteen, other 16 of them. That are that are not as good. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you left too much of a gap. Yeah, yeah, you, you, I did. you let us. You let us right in there. No, that's all right. Good pun to my one. That's all right. I accept that. <laughs> yeah, but we don't invite that one in. That's the thing. And I didn't let the right one in. I let you in. <laughs> oh, <harsh>. a zing! <laughs> but nice. <laughs> it worked. It flowed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yes, Brave New World. It is um, one of the most highly acclaimed science fiction novels of all time. Um, it's often put up there with 1984. In fact, there's a lot of comparisons uh, that are done and whole essays written comparing and contrasting the two. So, <laughs> The introductions kind of double the length of the book. Yeah, well, true. <laughs> um so uh, the novel starts with really a effectively a guide to the world of Brave New World. It's set in London in uh, 2540. Or it's what? the future. It is the future. <laughs> the world of the future. Um, although in the book it's, it's 632 AF, which is after Ford. Because Henry Ford is like basically praised as a god. Uh, <laughs> Which, you know, gives you a good idea of the kind of world that uh, Brave New World is. But, um, Are there any Jews? No, they're all Fordites. He hates Jews. They're all Fordites. They're Fordites? There's no Jewish Fordites, though, is there? No, no. No, no. God, Henry Ford was a bastard. There's no other religions. It's just Ford. There is just Ford, yeah. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) That's creepy. Yeah. Do, do they really say that? In Ford well, We Trust? In Ford no, We Trust, yeah. They, they, That's yeah, they, awesome. They, they I remember. Thank, I remember. Yeah, That's thank, what thank, I'm looking forward to this review. Uh, thank Ford. Um, any, any phrase that has God in it, replace it with Ford. Yeah. Uh, I have, no. I've seen the film, but that was a long time ago. Okay. So, um, the world of Brave New World is basically a, a benevolent dictatorship. Uh, it's ruled by ten world controllers. Nice. Yeah. Um, basically a stable global society uh, that's also broken up into a caste system um, based on effectively on cloning and genetic engineering. Um, There is no such thing in this world as uh, natural reproduction. It's actually illegal to produce naturally. It's abhorrent. It is totally abhorrent. Yeah, so... um, You have to clone one. Well, they have... Well, it's it's, it's more than that. They have, um, like, uh, hatcheries, basically, which are these factories where they're producing... Thousands of, of clones at a time. Cool. Right? So it's like from one from what batch you'll get like you know like hundreds of the same person. There's no mothers wow. and fathers. That that, yeah. that concept is also abhorrent. Yeah. In fact, right. in fact, using terms like mother and father are, are basically it's like swearing swear words. Yeah. Um. So you have yeah you have uh, five castes and the castes are bred for certain. Uh, purposes, with alphas, of course, being the elite class, and they're all the rulers and everything like that. Um, and, um, yeah, when you get down to, say, the Epsilons, and the, they're, they're, like, just bred to do do the work for everybody else. Like, and they're, they're actually effectively, uh, not quite brain-dead, but they're actually very simple. Drones. Yeah, effectively. Um, 
Also in this world, uh, you have, um, what do you call it? Hip, uh, hypno sleep. 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 Hypno learning. Yeah. <laughs> All praise hypno yeah. Sleep learning. Basically yeah. everyone's, uh, brainwashed from birth. Yeah, basically. Ah. Yeah. It's like, it's like when you, when you this sleep as a child. for my, uh, world takeover. Yeah, go for it. This is, this is the guide you want. This is the guide. And in fact, it has been misinterpreted many times as being a guide to how the world should be. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. There is, um, Complete discouragement of any critical thinking whatsoever along those same sort of lines. It's like, you know, we train you up in your sleep and then don't think for yourself. Mm. Um, even the alphas. Even the alphas, yeah. Um, there is also um, complete discouragement in every possible way of individual actions and individual activities. You're expected in your spare time to go and participate in team events and things like that and, and, and really in many respects amuse yourself to death. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, this includes, and you'll like this one too, Dave, hmm. this includes recreational sex, as in you are not expected to <laughs> have any emotional connections whatsoever to anybody. Yeah. So you just like, you know, you go and have sex with somebody for a while and then. Like Logan's run deal? Well. You like, you call them up? Put yourself on the on the rotisserie and yeah, it's, away you go. It's 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 more like you go to your group That's activity. What it is, the rotisserie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it wasn't like yeah. that. I'm, I'm hearing sort of lo- very a lot of Logan's run. Yeah, yeah. Analogies yeah. as in this. Do you get killed at a certain age? No. Oh, this start. Well, yeah, sixty. Well, sixty. Sixty, they get incinerated. Yeah, Logan's run is a complete. Yeah, yeah but Logan's run is like thirty. That's a, that's a little bit different. So, um, but yeah, the way this starts from very young ages, they encourage yeah. toddlers to do erotic play. Yeah, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> well, I mean, because you're not reproducing, sex is just sex, and and it's you know, it's it's, it's it basically the interplay is that you're not meant to make any emotional connection whatsoever to anybody. Right. So you can ju- you just jump from sex partner to sex partner because sex is just one of those things you do. Right. Um, there's also... That's how you pointed me out before you said that. Yeah, that's right. Let's go on here. Sleazy D. Sleazy D. There is, there is in amongst... In, sort of helping to promote this, there is also an, um, an hallucinogenic drug called Soma. So whenever you're starting to feel a bit bad or whenever you start to have independent thought or anything like that, just take some soma and all your worries will disappear. You have a soma holiday. Yeah, that's right. And the soma holidays are great. It's like you can be gone for a couple of hours, but it'll feel like weeks in in the soma induced hallucinogenic state. Cool. Um, of course, I, that's not said, but it's highly implied that it's highly addictive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, Xanax, antidepressant, and uh, what's the other one? Tranquilizer. Hmm. Used by housewives all over America. All right. Xanax, um, <laughs> that is so near you. <laughs> it's legit. It really exists. Look it up. No, I don't know that. That's really dumb. You just said it like an ad for it. That's all. No, no. I'm not saying you get a puppy as well. I'm just saying. <laughs> wait, there's more. It's real. There's a free set of steak knives. <laughs> so what Huxley actually creates here is a society that is, I guess, seemingly happy. Perfect, like in my opinion. Well, this is the thing. There's an abundance of um, um, of material goods. Everybody has what they what they want and what they need. Everything but of course, awesome. what they what they need <laughs> is dependent upon the programming that they have and the cast that they're in. So, if you're in a lower cast, right, then you're actually like, yeah, I am superior to say the cast below me, but I'm inferior to the cast above me, and I want to perform the duties that they're telling me that I have to do. 
I see no problem here so far. Uh, <laughs> I honestly have yeah. no problem here. Um, is that yeah, what so say? <laughs> you have a, you have a population that is confident. You have a population that is happy and yeah. um, a, a, a society that is stable. Um, Until someone comes along and fucks it up, right? Gets <laughs> yeah. some independent thought and he ruins it for everybody. Uh, not exactly. Not exactly. No, right, I'll stop it. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Most most people live um, in you know these, these big mega city type things. Cool. Right? But then outside of that, there is what's called the savage reservations. Have they gotten rid of all the birds? Because that's what I want to do. You want to get rid of all the birds? Seriously, this bird is my nemesis. You know, in the grand scheme of things, having a bird as your nemesis, that's actually not that bad. Yeah, it's pretty good. You know. I can't catch him. No. Sorry. I think I've got to get you a better nemesis. In fact, I'm going to become your nemesis. Oh, right. So, um, yeah, so there are these savage reservations uh, that exist outside of um, outside of these world cities and things. And um, they're kind of seen as, um, like... Curiosities, I suppose. Um, they're, they're very similar. They're basically similar to, say, the Native American reservations. It's like, right. lock them all away, and every now and again we might go out and study them and, you know, see what they're like. But but we live in our perfect world state. So they're separate to the the clones and the cases? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, their own, they're their own entities, but they're... And they, are, they do, like... Reproduce naturally. They do, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And they are... They're kind of isolated. They're, they're they're not really imposing anything upon, you know, the world state. Mm-hmm. Um, they sort of read to me like uh, the Amazon tribes. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. or yeah, Native Americans. Yeah, really, that that sort of thing. Um, so um, into this world, we're introduced to Bernard Marx. Bernard Marx is is an alpha, but he's an alpha that's been. Um, not perfectly cloned. Not he's not a perfect breed. He's actually much shorter than all the other alphas. And um, he actually Why isn't he discarded straight away. Then um, I don't, I don't have screening of some kind. Well, they do, but I don't think it's ever stated exactly why oh, okay. he wasn't, uh, you know, filtered out of the system or anything. He is actually he's picked on. Like he's he's, he's sort of a. Uh, there's a bit of derision towards him because he is shorter than everybody else and right. not quite as perfectly bred. He's a bit weird. He is a he is weird. Um, so he is a um, in comparison to the others. Yeah, he is actually a psychologist uh, that is uh, working for the directorate of hatcheries and conditioning. All right, so his job is to help like create the the hypno learning and all of that sort of stuff. And what? yeah. Yeah. There are no toads involved. There are no toads involved. <laughs> then I don't involved. want to do it. No. <laughs> um, now, he is actually um, a bit of a dissenter in this world. Right? Um, he knows he knows exactly how the system works because he's, he's obviously a major part of it. Um, and he's not open in speaking out about it, but he's he, he does. He drops subtle things here and there, and it gets him into a bit of... Uh, into a bit of trouble here and there. And at one point they actually threatened to send him to Iceland because his views are, you know, not matching those of the society, you know, so therefore he's a bit of a troublemaker. Um, but instead he uh, ends up going to one of the um, reservations. And what he finds there is a woman who um, is actually part of the world state. 
who travelled there years ago, um, and with, with the actual with native with the well with no 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 she travelled there with the director with the director of the hatcheries and like um, and there was an accident and he thought she was dead and so he basically left but she wasn't dead she was alive and not only that she was also pregnant so she's part of the world state but she's had a kid and is is living in this native society so um bernard seeing an opportunity here to get himself out of being sent to iceland and everything actually brings her back and the um, child is the child the director's child yes yeah. so he brings them back and kind of makes them into a curiosity but also in order to also big note himself and sort of go, hey, look what I've discovered. And isn't this a fascinating anomaly? And blah, blah. And he starts using that, though, to promote himself as well um, and becomes more outspoken. Uh, <laughs> becomes more like the people he didn't like in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So um, in amongst all of this, he also, um, Bernard also meets Lynn. Lenina, who is a woman within the World Society, and they... Uh, he, Bernard kind of ends up having a bit of more of an emotional connection to her than he's meant to, than he's allowed to have. Um, Lenina doesn't, though. She becomes kind of, I guess, the dissenting voice against his uh, rebellion against the society. She, she, She's a part of the society. She loves the society. Um, and she then becomes kind of also infatuated with John, who is the son from the reservation. Because, um, you know, because you're allowed to jump around sex partners and all that sort of stuff. So she kind of discards Bernard and, you know, um, tries to hook up with John. But John, of course, has all of these outdated ideas about courtship and romance. And um, and John, having had no real exposure to the world state or anything like that, his entire belief system about this sort of stuff is based on the fact that he had a book of Shakespeare's works. Anyway, I won't, I won't sort of go into more detail than that as far as the plot goes, because then we start getting into things that might be spoilers for people that haven't read the book. But suffice it to say that you have Bernard um, and his rebellion against society, but then you're also introduced to John, and John completely rebels against the world state. And um, How was he allowed to live? Wasn't he just bumped off? Well, at first he's a curiosity, and then he becomes a celebrity. So you can't just bump off a they're celebrity. Not, they're, so was JFK and he got shot in the head? They're a benevolent dictatorship. They don't uh, They don't run around like Nazis and enforce That's right. things. They sort of do it gently and coercively. Gently from, and coercively from when take you're, him away from, from society. From, from when you're a little kid, for the most part. And this right. is the thing. This is, why, this is why John becomes a disruptive presence in the society. Gotcha. They made yeah. a mistake. Um, should have got rid of him. <laughs> Well, well, John's the John's from the reservation. So. That's what I said. Yeah. As soon as he entered the city, yeah. sorry. See you later. But what you, what you get is um, one of the first things I found really interesting about this book is that they've created this perfect society where everyone is supposedly happy, but then you're given two characters, Bernard and John, who are you know the outsiders. Yeah, it's also Hermholtz, Bernard's friend, who's yeah. a bit of an outsider as well. Yeah, he's a he's a dissenting voice, but a quiet dissenting voice who they've kind of they have kind of shuffled away a little bit it does end well for Hermholt so I feel it actually look a lot of stuff doesn't end well for a lot of the characters in this book no no Hermholt I think he he gets the best end of the stick yeah yeah without Um, spoiling anything yeah so um yeah so those those are the basics what you're looking at here is a presentation of a perfect society that 
isn't actually a perfect society. Um, it's obviously very... First of all, it's very heavily influenced, I think, by um, a lot of the social theories that were being put forward at the time. Um, you know, the 20s was a big time for things like eugenics programs being brought to the forefront and stuff like that, and this is clearly an extension of that. Um, but Huxley himself has also acknowledged that he was influenced by H.G. Um, Wells. Wells wrote several several books about these perfect societies where everybody was actually happy. Um, and this is kind of almost like a satire of that. Mm. Um, unfortunately, like I said, it has over the years been misinterpreted by people. Um, it's also been imitated many, many, times, many, many, many times. times as well. So yeah. a, lot of its, a lot of its influence, its impact might actually be a little bit um, diluted. diluted today. Mm. Although... Given that, what I found reading it today, though, that um, given that we have advanced as a society and a lot of um, the ideas put forward there are still being put forward by people, things mm. like you know genetically engineering people and cloning and um, you know hypno learning and hypnotherapy and all, all of this sort of stuff, and um, not as a means to control society. Yeah. But, but you, you can still sort of see that the, the fears and dangers involved in that sort of stuff are, are still present today. Mm. And so the book, um, I think, still works in that regard. Now, there are a few things about it that might be a little outdated. Um, I mean, it was written in the 1930s. But much like, say, 1984, where you're reading the book and you're like, you know what? This is as relevant, if not more relevant today than it was in the past. There is still a lot I found in Brave New World that was actually quite relevant um, to today's society. This is this is one of the worst books I've ever read. Really? And when I say worst... What an opening statement. <laughs> when I say worst books, I don't mean that was poorly written or anything like that. It's just one of the books I've least enjoyed ever. I found it a real slog to get through, even though it was only 220-odd pages long. And I think the main reason for that is, and this is through no fault of the author, is that it reads now very archaic. Hmm. Um, uh, he's, it's, it's one of those books where the author's... To, this is how it um, presents to me. The author's thought, this is the way I can see society heading, and I don't like it, and I'm going to write about how like the worst scenario the worst case scenario and and be very preachy about it and he sort of projected into the future the current society what it might be like in the future but is he got an analogy for everything that's current so for example right down to the epsilon um person operating the elevator yep. so mm. instead of having a a, a human or a, a normal regular human person operating an elevator they've got an epsilon doing the menial job we have nobody operating elevators anymore i think the last per- last elevator operator retired a few years ago um, mm. who worked in collins street so it's just i mean as i say there's no no fault of the author but everything in it reads very archaic right down to the dialogue no i don't really usually really mind archaic dialogue um isaac asimov's dialogue can be quite archaic he's he's Yes. Characters do read like they are talking in the 1940s, but he's got such a rich world and rich characters surrounding that that I can overlook that and I find that quite charming. Whereas I didn't find 
any of the characters interesting in this book. They, they weren't really delved into any depth, the characters, and, I, and that's probably as a reflection of the society. But even when you get into the parts where you get down to see the savages, I'm doing air quotes there, um, and you find... Um, you get to the sort of the middle of the book where you expect the characters to start opening up and explore a bit more. They're still very one-dimensional. Mm. Um, so, uh, just so, did you feel that because one of the chief criticisms about um, Brave New World is that it's less a story and more a diatribe on the way that Huxley thought the future was going to exactly. be. Exactly, it felt very preachy, um, and right towards the end, it's very religiously preaching yeah that's interesting because I had the complete opposite reaction to the book um, in that I felt that see I love that kind of science fiction I love the, the the type of science fiction that says this is the world we have today let's extrapolate on that and see just where that world could go I like that too um, I just this one just didn't work for me and it yeah. may, may have if I had read it at the time which is impossible because I wasn't <laughs> born but um, reading it today mm. it's just it just wasn't working for me yeah see now i saw um like i said i saw enough parallels between modern society and yeah yes there are there are clearly like like any any book written in the past that is trying to look at the future no no one's going to get it 100 percent correct because yeah. you just can't um but i mean i i looked at say for example using the example used the the um epsilon person that is doing the elevator I compare that to say the situation we have now with you know things like sweatshops in third world um, countries where you know where where workers are being exploited and things mm. like that. So um, so I, I, I sort of looked at not so much the direct parallels between the world of today and the world that Huxley perceived the world would be, yep. but more what comparisons I could make with the world of today and how I could then reflect back on what he was writing in the thirties. And yeah, and I actually found, I actually found the characters quite compelling, um, especially Bernard. Um, I, 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 you know, th- that that insider who actually feels he's isolated from the rest of his society is a character that very much appeals to me and is a bit of, a bit of a staple of science fiction. Um, he did start I, to become interesting, but then after he brought uh, John back to society, he's under, his character became sort of like everybody else. Well, yeah, if, if I had a criticism of the book, um, well, two possible criticisms of the book. The first would be that, yes, when John is actually brought back into society, you kind of lose Bernard after a while, and yeah. then the story becomes about John. And, you know, the, the, the noble savage brought into the society, into the future society is kind of interesting, but not not as interesting as as Bernard as the insider, the one who's actually part of that society and rebels against it. I did find I mean, it a bit far-fetched that he could teach himself to read Shakespeare and then and get it. Well, I mean, he had his mum there at least teaching him English as yeah, a language, so yeah. I can see how you might pick that up. I mean, it's it's very Tarzan. If he did, you know, it, Tarzan yeah. learns to exactly. was it speak speak French and read English, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. If he if if he if he'd chosen another text or something, but I mean, this is set like a couple of centuries in our future, and we're finding it hard to relate to mm. Shakespeare in this day and age without yeah. studying it and mm. learning exactly what it means. Because the the language is quite archaic now, I find it hard to hard to believe that a, a savage 
in quotes again, person has just picked up this book, having learned a few words of English from his mother and and has dived into it and, and got... Yeah, yeah, I, he, he, I, he, I, didn't, if, I don't see a problem there. Yeah, I mean, it's the only book he's got, so if he's learning so to he's read, read, that would be the... All only, day, every day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe you get some of it wrong, but he still yeah. picks up on some, on some it's, of it. It's never indicated that he's got any of it wrong. Yeah. Mm. And that, uh, that didn't really bother me because I, I looked at it more from the perspective of this is what's shaped John's way of thinking and his morality and his belief in, in, in what romance is and things like that. But like I said, I, I, I found John to be the weaker of the two characters. Um, and, um, yeah, I was, I was actually more interested in Bernard's story. The, the other minor complaint I would have, and it's very much a, a style of how... You know, books were written back then. Is that the first part of the book is literally just the here's the guide to the world? Yeah, it's a big info dump. Yeah, and it's really not until you get through that first, you know, however many pages mm. it is of it's basically a, a doctor at the hatchery hatchery thing. Sorry, the director at the hatchery thing taking all these young people around and, and trying, oh, oh here's sure. the world, here's this, here's that, yeah. and. That's not that bad. Well, my problem with it is, is that there's, at, at first there's no story, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And it's not until then Bernard comes into it um, that you actually start to get a story. And, um, you know, today you might do it a little bit differently. You mm. might introduce Bernard and then show the world through um, through Bernard's eyes. Um, whereas here it's like a, it's like a bit of a... You know, it's like a, here's the world guide, and now we'll get to the story after the world guide is done. Yeah. <laughs> It, could you um could you say though that that's um, that that's coming from a person who's actually not a science fiction author per se? It could who's be a literary person who feels that in order for yeah. his audience who wouldn't have read amazing stories or um, yeah. astounding um, needed yeah. would have needed what else? I'm not, what else? I'm not. I'm not. Do you do? I'm actually not too familiar with his work. Well, he was he was actually like a political political satirist and. Before he did this, this was right. yeah. Well, I would. I, I, I don't mind if I don't, but I would have had Bernard do it. Mm. Well, um, yeah, just just something to not make it mm. like a, almost like reading an encyclopedia at the start. Yeah, gotcha. I um, think um, the start is kind of what put me off a little bit too, is because um, the director is so proud of the uh, amount of humans that they're able to produce, yeah. and I'm thinking. Probably because I'm steeped in uh, 2015, 2016 thinking. I'm thinking, there's how are they going to house and feed all these people? Even right down to the epsilons, they still need homes and, and food. And we're dealing with a major overpopulation pro- problem at the moment. But they're, they're just producing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people and, and are quite proud of the fact. Yeah. But they're also genetically bred to um, only need a certain amount of sustenance and things like that. Um, but and and you know then they've got all the people out there, out sl- outside the city slaving away in the factories. Uh, yeah, I just I just Epsilon think work quite dangerous, isn't it? Maybe is that what well, it doesn't really like matter for them. Yeah, yeah, Epsilon's, saying, yeah, they, Epsilon's they dying or something. Yeah. In another book, it's probably jobs you'd give to a robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nah, robots. Yeah. Every time you say the name, say the name Bird at all, just is is Birded. Um, he wants my hair. <laughs> 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 uh, I don't know. Just kill, dies in, kills I, I don't know. I just, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, anything else you want to throw in there? Well, I can see why it caused a stir at the time, and I can see why it's still held in, in reverence, because it's, I mean, it's, it, it did something that hadn't been done before its time, but um, it, it's, it just doesn't stand the test of time in my eyes, unfortunately, and I found it really dull. <laughs> I struggled, as I say, I struggled to get through it. <laughs> well, it's still, they're still trying to ban it in schools and things. <laughs> Um, well, ironic. I mean, yeah. in the book, uh, Shakespeare is banned because it's old. Yeah. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have yeah. any old stuff. Everything's new. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, I can sort of see modern society a bit like that <laughs> myself. Um, you know, look, I, I, I. Once the story actually got going, especially Bernard's story, I actually thoroughly enjoyed this. It's, it's a very. Um, there's a lot of anxiety in the book. Like, the society that it presents is quite, like, quite horrible in that it's just completely removed from any emotion and it's cold and clinical. And It's um, not as bleak as 1984. Well, no. Cause it's the, not as bleak as 1984. The humans but, are designed to be happy. But that's like saying, you know, <laughs> Raging Bull isn't as bleak as Apocalypse Now. I mean, you know, it's like, not, not the book is exactly presenting a beautiful picture of society in the future. No. <laughs> All right, uh, at least they've got the illusion of happiness. Well, they do have the illusion of happiness, but that's the thing. It is a complete illusion. I it do, is like, I, don't, don't think for yourself. Just do what you're told. Like, <laughs> I, I say, I, I do like the the ending and, and what happens to Hermholtz because that yeah. gives you like a little flicker of hope at the end there. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> no, not a huge I'd amount. Like it remains see, fairly bleak I'd still. like to see a sequel set... Uh, in the place where Hermholtz goes and, and that sort of... Yeah, so, yeah, anyway, uh, final ranking? One. One, Luke. Right. Just based purely on enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I will give this uh, four and a half Lukes. It loses half a point because, yeah, it is a bit of a slog at the start and because John... I didn't think John's story was quite as interesting as Bernard's, but, um, yeah, um, I, th- I, I, I think this deserves its place in the upper echelon of, you know, science fiction. Although I wouldn't call it one of only two great science fiction stories ever written, which was uh, something my friend heard uh, once. <laughs> uh, Aaron's teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Who declared the Brave New World in 1984 were the only good science fiction stories ever written. I don't think I've ever seen Aaron so angry. <laughs> well, I can't blame him, honestly. <laughs> Although there is that group of people that were referred to this as speculative fiction mm-hmm. instead. <laughs> well, don't cool. tell me that fits. Let it float your boat. <laughs> <laughs> a diversive review. All right, except we've got myself and young Luke. For another <laughs> interesting review. We'll see how it goes. But I did, of course, mean uh, divisive, not diversive. <laughs> but, you know, say la vie. It is what it is. Uh, okay, so Let the Right One In is a Swedish novel released in 2004 by author, and I am of course going to stuff it up, so will that Luke do it? Uh, John Avide Lindqvist. Yeah, Lindqvist. I didn't know the middle one, but I know, this, I know, I know his surname because I've listened Avide to it. Avide, I don't quite know how they pronounce the J's in Sweden, but... Because he's on the he's on the commentary in the in the movie, so that's the only reason I do. <laughs> he's pretty funny, actually. Uh, he uh, doesn't come across in the book. Uh, he's <laughs> oh, started. It's already started. We're it's off on. and running. Uh, he is uh, a national treasure in Sweden, and uh, 
and I'll be honest with you, I don't know why. <laughs> um, well, he has produced a lot of books. Has he? Yeah. Oh, well, I've only read two, and I don't get it. Um, anyway, so, Not the Right One In is a... It's kind of hard to bend down, but it, I essentially see it as a romance... It's a vampire romance story. Coming of age as well. Coming of age. Yeah, yeah right off the bat, I'm going to say it's not Twilight. <laughs> so it's a romance, romantic vampire story, but also involves coming of age. Mm. So it is uh, a setting in Sweden and uh, deals with Oscar, who is a 12-year-old boy who is uh, bullied quite badly at school and uh, his parents are... It's not specifically mentioned, but they're getting a divorce, um, and uh, his father uh, is, a, is a bit of a drunk and uh, lives off in the country and you know, lives naturally off the land, all sort of crap. And uh, his mother and he and Oscar himself live in one of the suburbs of, of Stockholm uh, called Blackberg, or Blackieberg, or something to that effect. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I had very... Uh, I, I was immediately drawn to this environment because... I myself grew up in. It's, he, he lives in a, a group of um, housing government estates. government created flats, like a housing estate type thing, which is where I my spent my you know very early years as well. So um, in Carlton in Victoria, so it's you know I sort of I connected mm. to that. Uh, one day he uh, well um, one day while he's out in uh, in um, on the play area, he notices a some new arrivals to the housing estate, and that is he later then learns that that is. Uh, well, how do you, is it Eli or Ellie? At first, I think you're meant to think Ellie. Yeah. Because um, we get given a description of her. Then I think later on. I mean, I always actually pronounce it Eli because, yeah. you know, I've read, far, it, I've read far too much American fiction and, you know, that. When you're reading the book, Eli. it's clearly Eli. Mm. But in the film, she it's pronounces Ellie. it Ellie. But that could, there could be a reason for that, which I think we should talk about. Yeah. Afterwards, yeah. Anyway, so it's um, and uh, and an, an older man who he assumed Oscar assumes is his, is her father, um, and she's also she's also about twelve, and uh, they move in, and and uh, he uh, is drawn to her one day when he's outside. Uh, oh, he has this sort of this sort of fantasy of of um, getting revenge on his bu- on his uh, bullies by uh, he stabs a tree mm. so he stabs a tree and pretends that it's one of his bullies and, and you know gets really violent and horrible and uh, she shows up one night and is like what are you doing <laughs> and uh, they have a conversation and, and right off the bat uh, he she says that they can't be friends mm. um, and he's like well I never sort of wanted to be your friend anyway and uh, very 12 year old and, and but they, they do eventually form a friendship um that is about as much as I want to say in the intro, because even though this is my book, my pick, I actually want to do something a little bit different, okay. and I want Luke to start, because I want to I want to feed and reply to you. Okay. Um, yeah. Along those lines, a couple of spoilers then. Um, no, no, sorry, not spoilers, a couple of things I should point out. I only got to page 216. Yeah. How far is that? So 316? Have you got the same edition? Yeah, I've got the same edition. Um, it's where you finally discover so what Ellie actually is. Who Ellie... What sort of person Ellie actually is. Really? Yeah. It takes you that long to find out who Ellie is? Yep. Oh, you mean, oh, they're in the reality of what Ellie, Ellie yeah. is. Yeah, okay. Because Ellie is, it's, it's a let's, harlequin. Let's talk about that, because yeah. we should probably talk a little bit about the films, because the films make a deliberate choice in this regard. Yeah. Um, I agree. And I actually started it long ago, as in a couple of months ago when we were, when we were talking about doing Let the Right One In. So things like, na- it, 
things like names of the other characters outside of Ostranelli, and they all sort of tended to blur in a little bit as well. But I will give it my best shot. Okay, okay so, so we are, we're going to do a spoiler alert. What? We are going to call a spoiler alert. I think we need to do because it's a very important thing I want to talk about. Yeah, so, well, I will. Do, okay, I will so do spo- I, I got no call spoiler. Spoiler. So spoiler Sweet. alert. But again, to the best of my memory. Yeah. Um, okay. So what we have actually is that we start off with murder. Yeah. Yes. Well. Yes. Um, that actually sets up a, a climate of fear in Sweden that um, is exasperated by um, the arrival of a Russian submarine. Yeah. Um, and what this is... Because well, it's set in the 80s, we didn't mention it. Set in the, it's set in the 80s. Yeah. Um, which was something that I didn't quite feel the need for, but... Hey. Well, the submarine's real. The submarine... No, no, the, the submarine's a real event. Yeah. Yeah, but there is a bit of fact. But <laughs> even with... Like I said, we'll, we'll talk about that in a sec. Mm. Um, and... Um, the murder itself, along with this um, this Russian, this Russian, the, the presence of this Russian sub, has created a climate of um, a climate of fear, uh, particularly when more bodies start to show up, and then slowly people start to realise that there's something quite not quite right. Mm. And Oscar, um, who has you know by the by this stage started to form a friendship with Ellie, has reala- realised that there's something not quite right with Ellie either, and he start he you know against the wishes of his mother and if I remember correctly, his father as well, he begins to sort of start not doing detective work per se, but he, he a boy who is fascinated by murder and death. Yeah, he has because, a scrapbook with because uh, of his crimes. Re- because of the revenge fantasies that he wants to perpetrate on the bullies. Yeah. Um, attempts to look into it a li- in a little bit more detail, really to sort of get an understanding as to how this person has done what they've done, mm. created this climate of fear. Um with the idea possibly being that he might perpetrate this himself at a later date. Yeah, he has this weird idea that him step, uh, because the crime happens the same night of him mm. first stepping the tree for the first time, mm. that he somehow caused it in some sort of supernatural way. Yeah, um, and then slowly he begins to realise that um, Ellie is a vampire, mm. um, and that the, the man that she's with is not her father, but her familiar. Yeah. Um, who has known her from, we don't actually get told of, memory when Ellie and um, the other man have actually when when they've actually met and how long they've been together but there is an uncomfortable uh, pedophilic overtone to their that to their relationship as in you found it uncomfortable or it's meant to be uncomfortable I know as in it's meant to be uncomfortable mm, I don't think so I think Ellie plays on that no Ellie to her advantage. No, no. Not not to Ellie to the for the audience. Oh right, uh, that's what I mean. You know, it's meant it's not meant it's meant to be a little hang on. What this isn't quite right. Okay. Scenario. Yeah. Which we then see when he goes and attempts to assault um, uh, a young boy, in particular a young boy in um, a gym. A teenage boy. A teenage boy in a gym. It's, it's, it's clearly pointed out that he never attacks children. Yeah. Because he's he's fear he's afraid of his own feelings. Hmm. Um, he's repressed repressed pedophilia. And all around this, you have a couple of other ongoing storylines as well. You've got um, the police investigation into the murders. Mm -hmm. Um, You have the relationship between one of the policemen and one of Oscar's old, the mother of one of Oscar's older friends who doesn't like the policeman. Yep. Um, You've got um, people who have known um, the murdered victims and their attempts to kind of deal with that and deal with the climate of fear that's been created. Yeah. All centred around um, this um, strange love... It starts with friendship, but they actually do get to the point where 
Oscar certainly gets to the point where he wants to um, uh, have a more involved relationship with her. Yeah, but a twelve-year-old nineteen-eighties relationship. Yeah, no, as, as it, you know, he, that, he wants it, to go steady, but yeah. it doesn't involve sex in any way. No, that's he, just, it, no. he basically just wants her to be exclusive. It, to it, he wants a, a romantic relationship yeah, yeah. with her, but you know, not all. Oh, there, there is no, there's no sex, right? No, no sex, no. Yeah. Um, and unlike today, when you get bloody grade ones mm. getting expelled because of sexual stuff, is it, is it, is it happened the other day? Mm. What along, the hell, man? All of I know. All, <laughs> alongside all of this, you've also got Oscar's attempts to deal with his mother and his father, and his father's drunkenness, and his father's um, relationship with friendship with um, forget the guy's name, the guy who just f- walks up suddenly. Yeah, yeah. And the, the I, I I read the inclination that you know they actually could be in a relationship themselves. I do get Oscar's, that hint. As in, it's just hinted. It's yeah, not. It's, hinted. it's not stated. Yeah, it's, um, I, but I don't think that is actually what it is. I no. think it's more of a. I think it's just more of just. It's because they just he enables his mm. his father Eric to be drunk all the time, mm. and so it's, and plus he intruded on their father sometime. Um, this all, but uh, through all this, you've got Eli's at, uh, Oscar's attempts to work out what's going on with the murder and what's going on with Ellie. Yeah, and you do get to the point where um, he realizes that. Ellie is in fact a vampire, and that Ellie is also not a girl. Yeah. Um, so that's as far as you got, right? That's as far as I got, and I would need to point out it was I didn't stop reading because of that revelation. I actually knew it because of that. I knew I knew of that because the films actually don't, at least the Swedish one, actually don't have that revelation. Mm. Ellie is a girl, or you know, they kind of try to hint that she might not be, but they don't. Oscar never comes out with a question, if I remember correctly. No, he does. Um, well, she she straight off she straight off the bat says uh, during the scene where she eats some food for the some actual human food, yeah. um, and gets and gets quite ill, and uh, he hugs her and she says, "Would you be Would you be okay if I'm if I wasn't a girl? It's like mm. I'm not I'm not a girl." Yeah, and he he doesn't understand what that means, and yeah. I and I I find that scene fascinating because. Mm. The natural assumption is that she means that I'm actually a boy, mm-hmm. um, and but he never, lets that go. Yeah, but it never uh, goes further. It never goes any film. further than that. But uh, in but um, in the in the film, uh, in the book, it clearly explains why, yeah, it, which we, is where you got to. But in the film, it's it not basically, Ellie; it's Eli, and it's yeah, short for Elias. Elias, yeah. So it's so in the book, it's very clearly described, it explained what she means by that. Um, but it also, be in the film, it's it's more it's more said that. Uh, well, in Swe- there's two different films. There's a Swedish version and the American version. And the Swedish version, uh, there's a scene where she's changing into a dress yeah. uh, after the scene where he, he doesn't invite her in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's she's getting changed, and he sneaks a peek. Mm-hmm. You know, he's 12. And sneaks a peek, and there's a you can see her sort of her genitalia, but there's uh, a scar there. Yeah. So there's... and um, But in the American version, he sneaks a peek, but you don't actually see anything. Mm-hmm. So in the... In the book, it's clear that that she is that it, he is clearly a boy, mm-hmm. um, an androgynous, uh, desexed boy, yeah. um, and a vampire. Mm-hmm. So she's not lying when she <laughs> says that yeah. I'm not a girl. In the Swedish film, it's just it's hinted, hinted, but mainly plays on the fact that well, she's a vampire, and so therefore not really a girl. She, yeah. She's a different creature altogether. In the American film, she is clearly a girl. They take the entire male yeah. aspect, the homoerotic aspect, out of it. And, it, and then when she says I'm not a girl, it's clearly because she's saying because I'm a vampire. Yeah, there you go. Does that clear it up? Yeah, that's clear. That, yeah. <laughs> but that's when I, you know, I like so, to so why did you stop at that point? I'm interested. I stopped at that point because I kind of wanted, to, I, I wanted to get to a point where there was something going on between um, 
Oscar and Eli. And my big problem with this is that um, he's very he's very interested in the the atmosphere of fear that it creates. Yeah, and there are a lot of there are a lot of um, storylines and subplots going on that yeah. I actually felt detracted from Oscar's story. Totally right. The, the, the element of fear stuff is played out completely with Jock and his friends. Jock, Virginia, Jaffe, and all the rest of them, right? Mm. Um, and every single scene that involves them mm. is incredibly pointless. Yes. Like, it's point, all of that needs to be cut. All of it. It's just, I, was, I actually, I find myself, I mean, I've read this multiple times now. Mm. So the first time, of course, I read it all. But the, the, the follow-up reason, I'm just, I'm skipping. Skipping. Yeah. Skipping. Because it's just, it just means nothing. It's just, basically, it all leads to the point where... Jock eventually gets killed by Eli, yeah. right? But you don't need any of this mm. in order to get to that point. No. Um, so, yeah, but it does... He does then... That's the element of fear stuff that he uses, because yeah. they're talking about that. Yeah. There's a group of friends that get together. And yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm totally right. Totally pointless. All of it. Um, and the other stuff is Tommy and Tommy's mum and Tommy's mum's relationship with the cop. Yeah. Again, there's no need for no. any of it. I just don't see... I mean, Tommy as a character is, is perfectly fine. He's, he's probably Oscar's only friend. And you need to, and you need Tommy for that reason. Oscar yeah. needs someone else to go and associate with, associate with to sort of flesh his character out a bit more. At first I would say yes to that, right? Mm-hmm. But as soon as Eli appears, he's now superfluous. Mm. He's, the, he's the older boy who... He, in normally, if Eli didn't exist, he would be the one that would say, well, Oscar, you need to defend yourself. Yeah. You can't just keep taking this all the time. You've got to hit back. But he doesn't do that. Mm. Eli does that. Yeah. And so that means Tommy is now pointless. Mm. So everything involving Tommy is gone. And I would, and I would agree with that as well. And because of, but beca- and because of that, I felt that Oscar's story was actually getting lost. Yeah. Um, the, 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 and I do prefer the films. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the film. I haven't seen the American one. I've seen the Swedish one because it does focus on... Um, Oscar and Ellie. Yeah. Um, their their relationship is what the story is about. Yeah. And it's funny that the film, the Swedish film, was actually written by John. Yeah. By Lindquist. And, I, and I, I agree. I think it's a superior version of the story. And because of that, you get a sense of something actually driving it. And so mm. the the interest in the mystery of Ellie is actually it's much more interesting and a little bit more profound. Mm. Whereas Ellie is a mystery here. Um, because it's lost in amongst all these other superfluous subplots. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that she's a vampire, I just, they got to the point where I just went, I don't really care. Yeah. And I found that with Oscar as well, with all the other subplots, and because he was such a put-upon person, and, you know, didn't actually, found it difficult to relate with parents and other people, um, the person that he is, with, that we wanted to associate with, wasn't actually... We weren't. It's like he wasn't actually being allowed to associate with them because suddenly we needed to concentrate on all these other characters mm. um, for no real story reasons. We've set up the climate of fear. Um, you know that's what the Russian sub is for. You know it's to tell us yes, these are these. This is going to be and the murders and the murders. You yeah. know it's going to it's going to um, tell us that these people are afraid. Yeah. Or that, you know that there is something hanging over their heads that could destroy them at any moment. Um. And then go into Oscar's story from there. Exactly. Um, and I found it interesting to note that one of the events that actually occurs late in the film, which is when he smacks the boy over with the ear, mm. um, actually occurs early here. Mm. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, as in earlier, before all the revelations about yeah. Ellie start to occur. Um, and so they're going, okay, this is actually kind of a pivotal moment because this is the moment where it does stand up for himself in the worst possible way. As in, he, he does take it too far. 
Um, and fight, no, fight I or think flight, so. Fight or flight. Let me put it this way. Yeah. Fight or flight kicks in. Yeah. Well, he's somebody. He's still. He's still horrified of what he does. He's still bending he's, down to try and assist. He's, he's horrified um, of what he does, but it, it's. I it, think it's it, totally. Deserved. It's not. It's not just you know putting the dukes up and then yeah. standing on two feet. It's smacking a kid over the ear with um, a brush. We're gonna have to agree. No, no, no. As in the kid deserves. The kid deserves rep- retribution. But yeah. you know the whole idea being that you know he, even in that moment Oscar goes too far. Yeah. Right. Um, which I think is actually implied in the book. Yes. Um, but yeah, like it's a bit of one in the story because it gives you an idea that Oscar's actually grown, but in this it just comes across as, I'm just angry. Yeah. Um, and that's just it. I, I just felt that all Oscar was was what the one thing. And the cool. relationship with Eli wasn't actually allowing him to flush it out. So that's why I stopped at 316. It was more a case of, all right, I just want at least something oh, to occur. So it wasn't, you weren't... The, um Okay, good. So you you weren't disgusted at the at the revelation. No, it's, it's uh, you know not at all. It, it made the pedophilic, pedophilic stuff major uncomfortable. But you, but you were kind of it was like, oh well, it is what it is. And the revelation of who Eli, what actually, how Eli becomes who she who she is, is you 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 were okay with all that. No, that that, uh, that that's it's okay. part of the character, oh, okay. it's part of the story. Right. I was that's, intrigued. I thought that's, that's what not, it was. I was that's, like, that's, oh, that's, that's actually not why I stopped reading. I knew that was there because of the fact that it's only hinted at in. And people have actually talked about that as part of the criticisms of the film. Gotcha. So I kind of I, I knew it was there. I knew it was coming. Um, okay, cool. And you know I'm not horrified by that stuff. Um, but it was more a case of I just wanted to at least stop with something about their relationship occurring. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and, it, and and you know I just took 316 pages. Didn't even get to the most famous scene, which is you know don't invite me in and I'll show you what what happens. Yeah. Um, that scene, if it's in the book, should be much earlier. It is in the book. And so it's not quite that. He says, in a really, in a really arrogant way, because this is after she reveals. So she, so it's after the scene down in the bunker where she licks the blood and, and has to leave before she kills him, and then he goes to her apartment and says, "Are you actually a vampire?" And she says, "Well, I, I need to drink blood to survive, but I'm not really a vampire." And uh, sort of plays with the sort of the, the mythology of it a little bit yeah. in a actually pretty ordinary way, I think. But anyway, um, and then. Um, and then that's when he's like, he just was, oh, I don't want anything to do with this because you, you just, you lie all the time. I don't, can't trust anything you say. And then, so then she goes to his apartment and so being a bastard, he yeah. says, well, what happens if I don't invite you in? Mm-hmm. Like, what is, what actually is the science behind it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so she then, to prove a point. Walks in. Walks in, yeah. But that's, see, that thing should come much earlier. Yeah. Because that's actually, it does two things. It's a pivotal, it's a, it's a, it's a good point of conflict in their relationship. Plus it's a, an actual well, she is a vampire type. So no, I disagree, man. I, I'm cool where it, where it occurs. I mean, because it's because they're at that point of the relationship where you've had the... He's mesmerised by her and loves everything about her and, and is willing to do whatever he wants, but, and now he's had this major revelation that to an adult would be would send them horrified, but he's like... He's not only is he's he's a, he's a he's a bit creeped out about it. In the book, he thinks that he's infected at some point because uh, he touches one of her bloody pieces of clothing. Mm. But it's but this is it that it's, that ran true to me. It ran true to me that a twelve year old would actually say, "Well, what's the deal? Yeah, no, no, like, that, why can't you do what you do?" And not, be a bit of a bastard about it because he's lost all of his power now mm. because she's a vampire. Yeah, so that, he's he's nothing in comparison. That, all the stuff, so he has to get some power back. All the stuff that you're talking about, that I've, I've completely agree with. Um, but if it, made, I mean, if it occurred earlier on, it wouldn't have made that much sense. No, but then uh, what I would have done was I would have cut a lot of the subplots out so that it can occur earlier on. Oh, in that case, I agree. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. <laughs> if you're talking, if you're talking like, earlier in page count, 
Yeah, then by all means, it, I agree. Because it feels like half know, the book all, would be gone. all that stuff with the relationship becomes <laughs> far too late in the book. Yeah, um, that's that's what I mean. Yeah. So not that it needs to happen earlier in terms of the plot. Oh, okay. needs, you need I'm to, with you. I go. You need I to understand. edit that thing down Ooh. to get it, to get the stuff that totally the agree. story should be about. Fifty page earlier at least. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I agree with that. Cool. All right. Well, yeah. In in the the comparisons of films, like as like, like I said earlier, I, I mean, I do think that the I actually think the Swedish version of the film is the superior version. Um, I do quite like the American version, um, but it, it does change a little bit of it. Um, it's, it's, it's in terms of. I think it's superior in terms of the way it's shot and acted. I think the, the, the cinematography and the acting is, is far superior. But I do like the fact that the American version gets rid of the bloody cats. <laughs> that scene is just so crap that it's just mm-hmm. it's crap in the book. It's crap in the film. Mm-hmm. What the hell was he thinking? And I understand, right? Because you know the whole animals react certain ways to vampires and yep. stuff. I totally get that, but it just looks ridiculous. And even reading it, I'm just like I can't stop picturing the film. Like, oh, I just can't. I can't do it. Have to skip on, um, and so because we got rid of all those characters, that would seem would have been gone in our version. Yeah. Um, but the American version gets rid of that by um, uh, replacing Virginia with uh, a neighbor. He's a bit of a peeping tom in the film. <laughs> like he peeps on on Virginia and like, her new man, and mm-hmm. and uh, Ellie accidentally infects her, and you know, and she dies when the nurse tries to do a good thing and opens the blinds, and <laughs> so it still has that cool moment where yeah. she explodes. But other than that, but uh, the other thing I'm really glad that it takes care it takes out is. Um, yeah, the revelation of who Ali actually is. Because I just don't think it's necessary. I just, I just, I like the fact that I'm, 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 I'm very impressed with the fact that uh, Oscar loves her regardless of the ambiguity. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's just a pure child love. Is, and, uh, and you never really sort of know for sure, whereas the book explains it to you. Mm. Um, so I'm glad they took all that out. As cool as it is, like, you know, the vampire lord and the, the ruggy hair and the, yeah. you know, and, the, and, you know, the way it's done and all sort of stuff. It's all interesting, mm. but, you know. Um, and also, and Hakan. So in the book, Hakan, um, who's her familiar, yep. um, in the book, she, he, after he pours the acid over her face, she feeds on him mm. in the intention of then killing him, but they're interrupted. Um, and... Uh, in the movies, she feeds on him and he falls out the window and dies. Mm. But in the book, it, because they're interrupted, he comes back as some sort of super vampire zombie type thing. It's never fully explained what the deal is, but he's, he's, he's irreversibly damaged. Mm. Um, but he comes back and uh, attempts to rape Eli. And I just... The whole... The the rape thing, you know, it is what it is, but it's, it, it, I mean, it makes perfect sense mm. uh, in terms of in the terms of the story. But just just the him whole, the whole thing of him coming back is just extra plot that the yeah. book doesn't need. It really feels like the book to me feels like a short story with the most a noveler stretched out to novel form. I felt that, and it just and it just doesn't work. Pad- so in terms of uh, so we'll finish up with, in terms of the review of the book itself. Mm-hmm. I just don't think the book works. Um, I'm no. glad that it, it that it's loved enough in order to then get made into a film because I think the film were, needed to be needed to be shown and is a great story and I love it. I love it to death. Um, I do remember the, uh, that day where I showed it to all of you guys and you were, you were all kind of like, yeah, and, and I'm sitting there going, this is brilliant. But um, I don't know. Anyway. if I never see that film ever again. Yeah, so yeah it, was, it was interesting. It's, uh, but anyway, it's like it's a classic moment where you show your friend your favourite film and, and they're like, yeah, you're like, you must die. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, but as but but the uh, the book itself, I just I just don't think it works. As a short story, I think it would have been perfect. Yeah, um, but. As a novel, I just don't, I just don't like it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> which is weird. It's, it's a tough one. I agree with your earlier statement that it's not Twilight, but it comes with its own set of problems. Um, yeah. So, ready? Um, I would give this one, like I said, 
I didn't finish this, and I felt once I got once I got to the the revelation about Eli or Ellie, um, I kind of went. I really don't feel the need to read past this now. You do miss the the, the pivotal end sequence, though. It's bloody awesome. Yeah, but I kind of like I said, I stopped caring. Right. Um, I didn't actually want to know how their story finished. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, I give it one look. Really? Okay. Um, as a as a book, um, I've, I can't give it any higher than two. Mm. I just. I just can't. I mean, it's got so many cool things surrounded by so much boringness. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's a two. Yeah. The films are fours out of five, easy. But the book, I just, two out of five. I'd give the Swedish one maybe three and a half. Like, I, I don't mind the Swedish one. Yeah. Um, it's not without its faults as well. It's a bit slow to get going, for being what, for one thing. But, yeah, this is. <laughs> so they're going, right, story, story. Oh, there's a bit of plot story. Story and just doing, although there was a lot of that. Like I said, I can't, I'm good with names for characters and I can't remember anything past Oscar and Eli. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you agreed to do this one with me because uh, I, I thought it was going to be interesting and it was. Mm. So that's uh, Let the Right One In. Let us know what you think and uh, whether you agree or disagree. Uh, next books. Well, the next book we're doing is The Time Machine. The Time Machine! The Time Machine! Yay! By H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells, the as man. We, as we push our way through the sci-fi list's top 20, yep. it is number 17. And uh, the next uh, crew pick is? Revelation Space by Alistair Reynolds. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so, thanks for doing that. So, I want to do Time Machine. <laughs> then I'm doing Alistair Reynolds. Yes. I'm, cal- I'm cautiously optimistic. Cool, so that's, uh, that's the Dutch Angus. We'll move on to... Our tributes to uh, David Bowie and Alan Rickman. Okay, so uh, it's been, as we discussed in the intro, it's been a, a week of, of uh, unfortunate passings, uh, but uh, the two that touched, uh, well, at least my heart, is, the most is um, Alan Rickman uh, and uh, David Bowie. Uh, the outpouring of grief for David Bowie was, uh, was worldwide. Mm. Um, yeah. One of the young ladies that I work with uh, was almost in tears and quite upset for most of the day is is uh, is just interesting to see just the, the effect that it had on people it was quite different from when Leonard Nimoy passed because we're all expecting that to kind of happen was it? nobody knew about Bowie or Rickman except their immediate families yeah. that's it that's yeah. exactly what it is I mean I was, uh, David Bowie's passing affected me not um, that that's a bad thing I mean no, it's no. totally up to them mm. the way they want to yeah yeah you know. oh for sure it's, I'm not this is no criticism it's a criticism free zone uh, it's, you know I'm, I'm not saying they were perfect humans but they were you know, they meant a lot to us, and mm-hmm. so we're going to honour their passing. I think they're especially surprising with Bowie, given that he released an album three days before he died. Exactly. Which, yeah. it turns out, was actually a, a sort of a deliberate thing. It was meant to be like, a, you know, I'm doing this album for the fans, knowing that something could, I could die somewhere yeah. down the track. Well, well, anyone message. anyone yeah. was going to turn their own death into a performance piece. Absolutely. It would be Absolutely. Bowie. Yeah. The star man himself. He didn't, he didn't yeah. die, he just went back to his home planet. Well, uh, he now has, by the way, he now has like 19 albums in the top 100 in the UK, like 13 singles as well. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we, will, we will actually start with Alan. Um, uh, so, Alan Sidney Patrick Rickman, uh, born 21st February 1946. Uh, he's a British 
one in London, England, uh, and died the 14th of January uh, from pancreatic cancer. Uh, he was an actor and director. In fact, I recently just recently just watched his uh, directorial debut, and it was pretty good, which is good. <laughs> uh, but he's uh, best probably best known for his roles as uh, Hans Gruber in Die Hard, which I believe is his first. Cinematic performance, yep. yeah? Yeah, he's breakout. I didn't realise that. Mm. Wow, what a, what a start. He did do some stage work before then, but this is his I, first film work. Uh, um, um, and he was also, like, he, yeah, he was actually a darling of the theatre scene in yeah. England, as, mm. you can, as you can imagine. Um, but his first, before Die Hard, his first, you know, breakout, people actually knowing who he is, is um, his role as Obadiah Slope in a TV series called The Barchester Chronicles. Ah, okay, cool. In which he does play, you know, again, a not very nice character. So right. the villain, the the villain persona kind of starts there. It, it does because Hans, Hans Gruber basically introduces him to the entire world. Yeah, but the um, the British actually, the British become aware of him in um, nineteen eighty two with mm. the Barchester Chronicles. And uh, and of course uh, Severus Snape in the Harry Potter film series who. You, I mean, is meant to be is meant to be a villain, but is, as you watch it progress, turns into I think the hero of the piece. Um, he's a like a triple agent, and uh, he, I mean, unlike unlike that snot bag Harry Potter, he he does every, all, everything he does. He does for love, mm-hmm. and uh, great. Uh, Severus is a great character, probably the only good character in the show. Uh, so. Not well, a big Harry Potter fan if you haven't figured it out. Helped probably by the fact that he's played by Alan Rickman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but he is awesome. Mm. Uh, but the the whole villain thing, yeah, I like what you say. I mean, he, he play. I mean, uh, Rasputin, the sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood, cancel Christmas. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to try and do an act. He's act. He's he do, call he do it off it? Christmas. Not quite. No, well, but the trick apparently is to not let your lips touch your teeth. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Call off Christmas. <laughs> uh, he had just such a distinctive voice. Uh, he also uh, did the. Um, he also. Uh, was in the Galaxy Quest. Yes, that's uh, awesome. One of my awesome. favourite Alan McRickman roles, yeah. along with Marvin the Martian. Ma- no, not Martian. <laughs> Marvin. <laughs> the paranoid android. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Galaxy Quest, awesome. <laughs> you shall be avenged. I grabbed those hammer. What's your savings? What's your savings? And, of course, the Blue Caterpillar in uh, the Alice, the Disney uh, live-action Alice <laughs> films. Um, yeah, so like I said, I mean, I'm not going to go through his, his entire thing, but like I said, he was uh, a darling of the stage. Mm. Um, he uh, he played uh, Valmont in uh, Lia- Liaison of the Dangerous, or Dangerous Liaisons, mm. <laughs> for those people who can't really speak French. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was, uh, there, there was the rumour that he was meant to be cast in the film, which was yeah. eventually given to John Malkovich, but I couldn't find any evidence of that, so I'm not too sure what that's about. But... Uh, He's uh, yeah, so but yeah, a whole bunch of films. Uh, of course, uh, also known for uh, wouldn't say would just say villain roles, but Sense and Sensibility and Truly Madly Deeply. Yeah, not Jamie. Villains. Jamie's not a villain. No, they're not villains. No, like, not. you know things like Love Actually and Dogma, which he's yeah, playing. Love Actually, know. yeah. Um, oh, Dogma, where he plays Metronon. Metronon, the yeah. the voice of God. Um, you know, they're not villain roles at all. They're actually quite you know charming, likable characters. Like like his character in Galaxy Quest. Say Metronon's likable. I liked him. I liked him too, but uh, likable? I don't know. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, he had uh, quite an expansive, expansive career and um, and much loved. I mean, he's, uh, this, this, the current generation obviously love him for Severus. I of course love him from Hans. <laughs> well, no, that's Hans. just it. Hans, you don't just go. Well, Hans Gruber played by that by that actor Alan Rickman. You go Hans Gruber, one of the best screen villains of all time. Mm, yeah. 
Um, which every, which every, we, everyone acknowledges. Hans Gruber mm. is one of the greatest yeah. villains yeah. in movie history. It's not it's really a, Christmas until I see Hans Gruber falling to his death. <laughs> <laughs> He's just got some of the best lines in that film, though. He won't be joining us for the rest of, of his, his life. life. <laughs> <laughs> some questions for you, really more fill in the blanks types of questions. That's a great voice. Mm. Yeah. He's one of those guys, kind, kind of like you know, Christopher Lee and James Earl Jones, who are just like John Malkovich being another one, where it's just like, give him the dictionary. Mm. Get him to say every single word so that we can record it for posterity and use it later on. <laughs> the other thing about Alan Rickman is the level of respect he commanded from cast and crew alike. Yeah. I mean, there's the famous story about Jason Mewes on Dogma and Jason Mewes being a particularly, um, you know, turns up late, quite often stoned or drunk. Unreliable. You know, unreliable, um, to the point where Kevin Smith at one point said, seriously, get your act together, man, or you're off the set. Um when, you know, they started doing Dogma and Kevin Smith had cast Alan Rickman, um, you know, Jason Mewes just went, yeah, okay, got to do something about this here. And he and Kevin Smith actually sat down to talk about the movie. And Jason, Jason Mewes said, oh, I've learnt, I've learnt it. And Kevin Smith thinking, oh, no, he's just learnt his part, though, that's good. Um, no, he's learnt the entire film, the entire script, because Alan Rickman always demanded professionalism from... Mm. his cast so mm. someone like Jason Mewes attempting to get their act together because Alan he was working with Alan Rickman yeah um, you know that it just shows you the level of respect that people who worked with him mm. generally tend mm. to have yeah and the, and the love that the that the potty kids all mm. yeah all, all had for him and, and everybody, everybody who worked with him loved him so um, yeah it is it is a damn shame um, he will be missed he was he was excellent uh, moving on to David Bowie, uh, huge, huge impact. David Bowie, my God, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what I can say. I mean, he's, he was <laughs> he uh, a staple of uh, my life growing up. Uh, I, I mean, his, his music and uh, and his attitude. I mean, he's he his ability to change his persona and and uh, style. Just effortlessly, you know, just you know, it's what Madonna tries to do, but he just he just did it without even thinking about it, sort of stuff. And and just the amount of talent oozing out of this man, it's just unbelievable. It's, and he was, I mean, he was a music icon, fashion icon. <laughs> you know, he's just, I mean, he's, and, and it just and just demanded respect from from everybody involved. Um, he's one of the things I loved about him was that he just did not give a shit. With, with, about what you what you thought. I mean, he's, mm. he was he would dress and act the way he wanted, and you know he may have got derision for it at just to, to begin with, but then you know eventually it's it's what everybody was trying to do. Everybody tried mm. to be him, and what, you know come up short. What often amazed me was um, he he would do something like let's say Ziggy Stardust, and yep. then suddenly everybody wants to do that. Yeah, and whilst everyone else is doing it, he's already then moved on to, um, you know, the the uh, plastic soul that he was doing with younger Americans, and then when people start doing that, he then goes off and starts doing the the Berlin stuff, and yep. um, you know, it was always like he would do something for a certain period of time, then it became really popular, 
but he'd already moved on to the next thing that That's he wanted to do. That's how his mind was working. And, um, it was just, yeah. yeah. So it was always ahead of the curve. The thing is with Bowie, um, and you, you tend to forget it because his music's so familiar, but you, you, what, uh, before every piece comes out, there was nothing before that like mm. that. He's one of the very few artists in the world that you could say was truly innovative. Mm. Um, I can probably count on top of you one hand how many others, maybe the Beatles... Like, yeah. people who are, there's many many artists in the world who do wonderful stuff but there's not very many people who you can say before there was that sound bef- before they made that sound there was nothing else like yeah. it yeah there are yeah you're right there are and there are there are artists to become popular and everything but there's only a very select group of people that become that go beyond that and become actual cultural icons yep um and yeah, Bowie was one of those. I mean, you know, he's up there with people like Elvis in that regard, as far as just becoming part of the of the zeitgeist and the popular culture iconography. Um, Freddie Mercury. Yeah, yeah. No, this look. This I must admit, this this death had a pretty major impact on me. Yeah, um, it's just. I mean, it's because it's, it's celebrity it's, deaths, right? They happen, right? People yeah, die. Yeah. But when I heard David Bowie had died, I immediately called you. Yeah, well, you didn't. You ran and told me. Uh, and, <laughs> well, that's uh, true. Oh yeah, I was across. I was like, "Dude," and you were like, "Yeah, I'm, just, I'm watching it now." Yeah, you know I mean? and it's just. Yeah, and I, I never do that. Mm. You know, what I, mean? I was like, I never do it, but it's just, it was just, it struck me. Yeah. So then, could you guys say that you've had um, a bit of a uh, an Elvis seventy-seven? Yeah. Type yeah. moment there where. Yeah. There's apparently that's what the people weird, were doing. The weird thing about this day and age, though, is everybody finds out at the same time. Yeah. So David came in and told me, and I said, "What? It hasn't even hit Twitter yet." And then the very next tweet, because oh, I was reading Twitter at the time, the mm. very next tweet I looked at was no yeah. exclamation mark. Yeah. I, I, I did the same thing. I jumped online because I'm like, a few people were saying this. I'm like, yeah, no, no, no. I'm going to check online to make sure that this isn't like. A hoax, because like another Jeff Goldblum well, there'd, there'd, thing. There'd, there'd yeah. been a there'd been a, a, a Bowie's dead hoax about a week and a half before this, oh, and right. I was like, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know. But and I'm and I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm getting calls from from Dave and and a few other people and everything. I'm like, oh, I'm not convinced, not convinced. Then Duncan Jones, his son, yeah, actually posted something, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, all right, that's fair. That that's that's, that's what apparently official. happened was that's that fair. CNN found it, what found out first. Mm. And refused to report on it because they thought it was either a a hoax, yeah, <laughs> right, um, or at the very least unconfirmed. Yeah. And so they held off on it until Duncan Jones tweeted it, yeah, and then yeah, the whole and then, yeah. shit at the fan. Yeah. So, yeah. I look, I feel like you got to feel for Duncan. Yeah, As, I mean, yeah. I was, he's, I mean, he's busy, 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 and you know, his father passes on. And it's like mm. he hasn't revealed anything. It's like they've kept it very quiet. Yeah. Yeah. The amount of pressure that dude's under. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I must admit, this one this one actually really hit me. Mm. Um, and really, in a way that a, a musician's death hasn't hit me since Freddie Mercury yeah. in 91. Um, because Queen and Bowie, like, growing up, Queen and Bowie were, were it for me as far as music was. Like, there was Queen and Bowie and everybody else that was awesome after that. But they were my absolute favourite performers growing up. Um, gotcha. you know, and then of course they did Under Pressure yeah. together which is one the, of the, the most the, the awesome media. songs ever yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so this it was a similar thing with Freddie there was a, um, people knew he was ill but there was big secrecy around what it was yeah. because of yeah. the way well, I didn't even know David was ill well I know nobody did they had mentioned that he was having some 
issues probably about, I don't know, 18 months, two years ago. I remember reading that. And, um, but then they were like, ah, oh, but he's doing okay and everything will be fine. And, and then mm. the, the big announcement comes that there's a new album coming. I'm thinking, great, great, awesome. this is it. We're all good, you know. Um, you actually mentioned it on the show. I did, about, uh, yeah. Elvis my favorite, my yeah. my favorite song was yeah, actually the was, was uh, black the Black Star release, and um, yeah, and um, that freaked me out. Yeah, that was creepy, dude. <laughs> yeah, like, not not at the time, but then you know a week later. Yeah, yeah. No, it. Um, yeah, you know, and I mean, like I even I, I I a lot of people refer to his to his seventies stuff and the early eighties stuff, but I mean. I actually loved his his 90s output as well um, and the 2000s stuff. And, yeah, and there was a big gap between albums in the 2000s before he did The Next Day. So that had me a little bit worried at one point. Mm. But then the the next day comes out, it's like, oh, great. No worries. He's back doing albums again. Um, Yeah, no, I I had really the honour, I would call it, of actually seeing Bowie live um, in 2003. Uh, in what was, without a doubt, the best concert I've ever seen. Guy did, like, almost three and a half hours worth of music, 31 songs. Um, yeah, just, you know, one of those concerts that's almost like a like a transcendent experience for you. Mm. Um, and there was always that part of me, even though he hasn't toured since, or hasn't performed live since, I think, 2006 or something, there's always that part of me that was like, Oh, you know, he'll come back again. I'll get another chance to see it. I'll buy con- you know, tickets to every concert he does in Melbourne. And yeah. And then, bang. Mm. So. It's a damn shame. Let's let's uh, talk about some of uh, the things that we love most about Dave Brower. It's like, you know, favourite songs and... And let's talk know, about... Performances that. and stuff like that. <laughs> I think my... My ultimate Bowie stuff is, is the 70s and 80s stuff. I, mean, I do the same as you. I like some of the later stuff as well. I mean, Valentine's Day is one of my favourite songs from yeah. his later years. But the 70s and 80s stuff is, is always going to be my favourite. And and um, I just keep coming back to The Labyrinth. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I, just, I just love that movie so much because of Bowie. Yeah. It, I don't think if, if Bowie wasn't in it, I don't think it would be nearly as good. But... Um, it's 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 really kind of an yeah. absurd film and an absurd yeah. performance, but he just so totally he owns embraces it. it. It's like, yeah, this he is ridiculous, and it. I'm going to play that up. And and I just I just love the the music in the film. I don't know. It's actually yeah. it's actually been on my iPod consistently for the last ever since I had an iPod. <laughs> and it switched over to phone, and it's and the, and the music goes on that. So it, it's always there. <laughs> I'm with you. Labyrinth was uh, was huge part of my childhood, and uh, you know the, the cod piece of doom and, and you should uh, see that. You really should see that in Blu-ray. <laughs> uh, so go H- to the Astar. HD cod piece. Go to the Astar and see it on the big screen because there's a couple of shots there where you're like, "Whoa, Dave!" <laughs> <laughs> just, just don't um, yeah, take off the 3D glasses. And, yeah. and yeah, when you think about it, that film is actually kind of creepy. I mean, she's meant to be 14, doesn't it? <laughs> and, but, <laughs> it's it's kind of weird, but and, yeah, the music's awesome. Yeah, and the performance is great. If you look at it from a 14 year old girl's perspective it's not creepy at all and it's yeah. probably about the age i was when i first saw it maybe even younger really oh there you go see um but yeah i mean yeah ziggy sardust uh the man who fell to earth the thin white duke space oddity i think my favorite songs are are the spacey ones i like yeah. the space oddity and um, starman life, life on, on mars. mars yeah 
Look, there, there's an amazing period of music he has there in the in the early 70s, from uh, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Diamond Dogs. That, that glam rock period is just a defining period for music. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, and but then he follows it up with, you know, low heroes and the lodger the the berlin stuff and thankfully he did go to berlin because you see some of the photos of him before he goes to berlin oh, and gets himself he cleaned just up and horrible, oh my god it looks like he's gonna die death on, mm. death on, well, death well, well when your entire diet is cocaine and milk you know there's a <laughs> something up yeah look I, i've got i've got three favorite david bowie songs from actually from three different periods um there's a song called five years which is the start of the ziggy stardust um, album, which I just absolutely love as a song, and fortunately he performed it surprisingly performed it live because it was a, it wasn't an actual single or anything, but um, yeah, and then um, um, Ashes to Ashes would be my second favorite of his, uh, which is the I'm off drugs everybody I didn't die song. Um, one, of, one of the very few songs in the world that it's that has a reference to a previous song like a sequel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it has that. You know what was a like groundbreaking video clip at the time as well. Um, kind of looks a little bit hokey <laughs> a bit these days in some of its effects, but at the time, yeah. Um, and then um, there's an album he did in '95 called Outside, which wasn't really highly praised or anything, but I I love it. It's an album that I still listen to a lot every year, um, which has a song called Hearts Filthy Lesson on it, which is. Uh, yeah, it's a concept album. It, it is, yeah. Mm. And this was his uh, this was his uh, return effort with Brian Eno, who he'd worked on uh, the Berlin albums with. And uh, yeah, it is a totally bizarre album. It's totally out there, but it, it to me, it's one of those ones that shows Bowie at his absolute most creative. You know, where it's like I don't care, you know, if people want you know songs or not. I'm just going to do this this art piece. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I think it really sums him up as a creator and as an artist. Yeah. I'm totally with you. It's, I, I, there's too, there's too many songs for me to say, like my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. There's, just, there's far too many. I'm a big fan of fame. fame. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, and of course, Lennon. under with pressure. Lennon. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I don't know. There's just there's too many. I just can't, right. I can't go through them all. One of my favourite Bowie songs isn't even a Bowie song. It's the Flight of the Concords, Bowie's in Space. Song. <laughs> That's what I've had in my head yeah. for the past two uh, past week. You know, Bowie's in space. <laughs> Do you like my jumper, Bowie? <laughs> Do you take many sequin, many sequin spacesuits, Bowie, or do you take many to changes? <laughs> there's a great article written by Jermaine uh, Clement. Yeah, about that that uh, he actually published after Bowie's death, which I, I recommend to anybody to have a read because it's, <laughs> it's fantastic. But I did see, I did see that uh, Ray Starby tweeted that out, and which I then immediately popped on on Facebook. Yeah. I think you would see it. So. Yeah, it, it is a it is a great article, but uh, very funny, but also shows the great level of respect. Yeah, um, that really just seems like everybody has, and I'm I'm not I'm, I haven't really met anybody that wasn't. Affected in some way or even, another. Even by this people death. who aren't really big fans, I haven't heard anybody have anything negative to say. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. well, you'd have to be a real horrible person to say something negative at this point in time. <laughs> wouldn't you? Are you entitled to your opinion? Uh, it's a bit. It, it's mm. a bit. It, in that case, it's a bit hard to argue with. Um, it's a bit hard to argue with um, the impact that he has had on music. You know, yeah. forty years worth of 
uh, 40 years worth of music and songs and, you know, a number of those years being, you know, not insubstantial hits. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone could really argue that, you know, his impact on the music industry is not, you know, is not profound. Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, actor, artist. It's a triple threat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the, the the combining of of art and theatre with pop music is phenomenal. So that's uh, Alan Rickman and David Bowie. Uh, rest in peace. It's and look, if we can have like like a bit of a moratorium on like celebrity deaths for a while, yeah, can we? You know, just yeah. just, just give us a chance to get over these ones <laughs> before the anything else happens. Being cancer too, which is yeah, you know, it's just pow pow pow. Cancer's no, you know, take it. Yeah, I did say that tweet. It was like everybody form a protective circle around Patrick Stewart and uh, Eddie Ian McCallum. McCallum. Yeah, and David Attenborough. Yeah, there's also a great uh, there's a great photo going around, which is um, Lemmy from Motorhead, who yeah. actually oh, died who also, in December uh, of yeah. cancer. Yeah, um, Last year. Lemmy and Motorhead, Bowie and Alan Rickman all given the middle finger. Yeah, and it's got you know F cancer underneath it. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Yeah, but yeah, the the outpouring of, of grief and emotion and respect has just been absolutely incredible to see and you know, points to humanity for actually having that response. Um Yeah. Yeah, and not going for what often happens, the usual, you know, negative Cynical. Yeah, things that pop up. Abu- often abusive things that come up in these sort of areas. Bloody internet. But uh, on that note <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, yeah, that's it's episode one seventy eight. It's uh, it's a bit of a downer, downbeat way to end it off, but uh, <laughs> it would have been just as downbeat ended it on. Let, let me in. I'm joking. I'm was, I was so glad that we did that together. <laughs> uh, anyway, so it's uh, yeah, episode 178. Uh, so next week we'll have uh, the return of Bo for 179, but for now, that's it. Thank you very much to the original Flavor Crew. That's it for me, uh, Richo. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, boy. <laughs> Boing. Look, this is Bowie to Bowie. Can you hear me up there, man? <laughs> hey, Crystal. What's going, Blake? <laughs> Boing. 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 You're using your telescopic nipple antenna <laughs> to send data back to Earth. <laughs> Receiving transmission on David Bowie's ne- frozen nipples. <laughs> frozen nipple antennae. <laughs> You've been listening to NCP. Thank you for being a part of our crew. If you would like to support the show, you can use the Amazon widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. If you have any feedback, please go to nerdculturepodcast.com forward slash contact us where you will find a list of the many different ways you can interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.